If you have your Bibles, I want you to go to 1 Kings chapter number 17. Now, we are in a series uh, called Ready, Set, and uh, every week um, we are going to go through another uh, phase, and I prayed about this, so they all rhyme, so that's good. Um, uh, last week was Ready, Set, No, N-O, and uh, uh, how many of you all were here for that message? I thought that was uh, something that God spoke uh, to us from. And so today, I want you to go to 1 Kings chapter number 17. I'm going to read uh, really the whole chapter, and you're just going to have to deal with that. Um, uh, but I'm going to read uh, the entire chapter. I will try to read it in a way that is engaging so that you will not get bored. Uh, but I want you to have a full context of uh, what the Lord is doing in the life of the prophet Elijah. I think there's going to be some things in here that are going to blow your mind. First uh, Kings chapter number 17, starting at the first verse. It says this, Now Elijah, who was from Tishbe in Gilead, told King Ahab, As surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, the God I serve, there will be no dew or rain during the next few years until I give the word. Then the Lord said to Elijah, Go to the east and hide at Kareth Brook, near where it enters the Jordan River. Drink from the brook and eat what the ravens bring you, for I have commanded them to bring you food. So Elijah did as the Lord told him and camped beside Kareth Brook, uh, east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat each morning and evening, and he drank from the brook. But after a while, the brook dried up, for there was no rainfall anywhere in the land. Then the Lord said to Elijah, go and live in the village of Zarephath near the city of Sidon. I have instructed a widow there to feed you. So he went to Zarephath as he arrived at the gates of the village. He saw a widow gathering sticks and he asked her, would you please bring me a cup of water and uh, would you please bring me a little water in a cup? As she was going to get it, he called to her, bring me a bite to, of bread too. But she said, I swear by the Lord, your God, underline that if that's in your Bibles, your God. I swear by the Lord, your God, uh, that I don't have a single piece of bread in the house, for I have only a handful of flour left in a jar and a little cooking oil in the bottom of the jug. I was gathering a few sticks to cook this last meal, and then my son and I will die. But Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go ahead and do what you've just said, but make a little bread for me first. <laughs> then use what's left to prepare a meal for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. There will always be flour and olive oil left in your containers until the time when the Lord sends rain and the crops grow again. So she did as Elijah said. And she and Elijah and her family continued to eat for many days. There was always enough flour and olive oil left in the containers, just as the Lord had promised through Elijah. Sometime later, the woman's son became sick. He grew worse and worse, and he finally died. Then she said to Elijah, O oh man of God, what have you done to me? Have you come here to point out my sins and kill my son? But Elijah replied, Give me your son. He took the child's body from her arms, carried him up the stairs to the room where he was staying, and laid the body on his bed. Then Elijah cried out to the Lord, O oh Lord, my God, why have you brought tragedy to this widow who has opened her home to me, causing her son to die. And he stretched himself out over the child three times and cried out to the Lord, O Lord, my God, please let this child's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's prayer, and the life of the child returned, and he revived. 
Then Elijah brought him down from the upper room and gave him to his mother. Look, he said, your son is alive. And the woman told Elijah, now I know for sure that you are a man of God and that the Lord truly speaks through you. So last week was ready, set, no, and oh, this week is ready, set, no. K-N-O-W. So I'm not repeating myself. I'm not trying to recycle a message. Uh, last week was N-O. This week is K-N-O-W. Okay? Ready, set, no. So let's pray over the words we get, before we get started. Bow your heads. Holy Spirit, help us to know. Amen. 1 Kings chapter number 17, one of my favorite uh, chapters in the entire Bible. Uh, when I first gave my life to Jesus Christ, I probably preached uh, out of 1 Kings chapter number 17 more than any other chapter in the Bible for at least 10 years. Uh, so much so that my wife started to ask me, hey, baby, do, is God talking to you about anything else <laughs> besides 1 Kings 17? You, you're seem, you seem to be squeezing all of the revelation <laughs> that God has out of it. But it continues to speak to me uh, to this day. Here it is 20 years later. Thank you, Daddy. When your dad starts walking up to you in the middle of the sermon, you're just like, oh my goodness, I'm in trouble. I'm 41 years old and I'm about to get grounded. Thank you, Poppy. Uh, so, so, uh, uh, Elijah had this real um, compelling narrative uh, that still draws me to it. And here it is 20 years later. I'm still uh, teaching about 1 Kings chapter number 17. I don't find that shocking at all uh, because the Bible is the only book that's breathing. The Bible is the only book that's alive. The Bible is the only book that when you open it to read it, it's reading you. As you begin to pour into it, it begins to pour into you. And he has not stopped speaking. He is just unfolding. First Kings chapter number 17, Elijah steps on the scene uh, out of nowhere. We don't have a narrative like we have with other uh, uh, people in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. Uh, there's some people that we can trace all the way back to their birth. We even know uh, the prayers of their parents, but Elijah's completely different. Elijah just pops up on the scene, full-grown, prophesying uh, that it's not going to rain. He takes the spiritual temperature, the climate of a backslidden Israel, and based on what is going on, he says, it's not going to rain until I say so. He has such a connection with God that God says, whatever you say, I say. If you notice, he did not say, thus said the Lord, it will not rain. He just said it wasn't going to rain, and God said amen to that. I feel the same way. And for three years, it stopped raining. One man's word, compelled by what he saw going on in the land of Israel, shut down heaven, and there was no rainfall. What's amazing to me about this is that uh, sometimes you can give a prophetic word as judgment and you have to experience it too. <laughs> I want you to think about it. He said, it's not going to rain for three years. Uh, and so there was a drought for three years. 
and Elijah was in it too. It wasn't like there was a little rain cloud over Elijah's head, still giving him fresh water. He had to go through the same thing that the rest of Israel was going through. Because there is a, certain, a, a thing called corporate sin. There is, there is something uh, said about when a, a nation begins to backslide or a nation begins to move from the principles of what God has established that we all have to suffer certain things because those in power seem to be turning their backs on the Lord. And Elijah's experiencing this, but God's provision is still absolutely astounding. He tells him where to go. I want you to go to a specific place, and when you go to this specific place, I am going to provide for you there. There's a little stream that's going to come down this brook called Carith. You're going to stay right there. I'm going to make sure you're provided for, and ravens are going to bring you something to eat twice a day. You'll eat in the morning, and you'll eat in the evening. You will have breakfast, and you will have dinner. You will fast for lunch. No birds will be flying <laughs> at lunchtime. Here's what's amazing to me, uh, that, that carnivorous animals who would be in the middle of a drought, starving, hungry themselves, would pick meat up, put it in their mouths, not swallow it, and fly it to a destination and drop it off for somebody else to eat. Here's the other thing that absolutely amazes me. Carnivorous animals that are picking off the flesh of dead animals, meat that should be rancid, and unfit for human consumption is somehow purified and cleansed so that, that by the time it gets to the prophet, it can be eaten without him getting sick. God knows how to give provision. We serve a God that knows how to give provision without tainting it when we consume it. This has to be the best time ever for Elijah. He gave a prophetic word that came to pass, and he's being taken care of by God himself through some birds. And all of a sudden, the brook dries up. And God tells Elijah, I want you to go to Zarephath. This had to be absolutely shocking to Elijah. Out of all the tribes in Israel, you've chosen none of them? You want me to go to a foreign place for my next place of provision? You, you, you don't want to send me to Judah? You don't want me to go to Manasseh? You don't want me to go to the tribe of Benjamin? You don't want me to go to Dan? You don't want me to go to Nephtali? You want me to go to Zarephath? There's nobody that knows you in Zarephath. There's nobody with a commitment to you in Zarephath. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to see that in this moment, we see an Old Testament type and shadow of God's grace. That, that same provision of God that would ultimately be open to not just Jews but Gentiles did not wait for the Savior to die on the cross to present itself. But that over and over in the Old Testament, there are cameo appearances of God's grace making provision for people that do not have covenant with him so he can show his love so that they might have a glimpse of who he really is. This is such a profound moment that Jesus talks about it in Luke chapter number four. Here's what it says in verse 25 and 26. Certainly there were many needy widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the heavens were closed for three and a half years, 
and a severe famine devastated the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them. He was sent instead to a foreigner, a widow of Zarephath in the land of Sidon. This is such a monumental moment, Jesus even knows about it. This didn't escape the narrative of heaven. This was a big deal that a prophet of God was being sent to a foreign land, and not just a foreign land, not just a foreign city, the birthplace of Jezebel. You do your research, Zarephath was the hometown of Jezebel, the same woman that would try to intimidate the entire citizenship of Israel. God says, when I want to prove a point of how I'm going to really rule and reign, I'll send you to the hometown of the person that you're a little bit intimidated of to show you that my provision is above intimidation. He, he goes to Zarephath, and as he's walking into the city, he sees a woman who is gathering sticks. She's gathering these sticks. She doesn't uh, look out of the ordinary. So normal day, except for this famine, she's gathering these sticks. And Elijah just walks up to her and says, could I just have a cup of water? And whatever was on her mind or whatever she was doing, this did not seem to bother her. She does not seem to be frustrated by the fact that this man who has just journeyed into her town has asked for a cup of water. As she's gathering sticks, the man walks up and says, uh, could you get me a cup of water? And she immediately turns around to go get him a cup of water. This is Middle Eastern hospitality at its finest. Okay, okay, I see you coming. You look like you've been on a long journey. I will go and get you some water. And while her back is turned, and she's walking to go get the water, and he says, and, and while you're at it, uh, could you bake me a piece of bread? Her back's turned. And she's walking, and while you're at it, will you get me some bread? And she just turns around, look. <laughs> I swear by the Lord your God. I don't have any bread, sir. You asked for water in the middle of a drought. You were already testing my patience. Okay, but I can get you a cup of water. Uh, but this bread you're talking about, sir. <laughs> okay, because you probably don't. Okay, you see these sticks? Okay, all these sticks. I got all these sticks right here because what I'm about to do is like go make a fire and bake the last piece of bread that we have, the last flour, the last oil I have to make a cake. Uh, I'm going to do that, and I have a son, okay? So I'm obviously uh, widowed. I have a son. I don't have a husband. He's dead. So we're going to eat this last piece of cake, and we're going to die. That's pretty much it. This woman has thought this through, because women think things through. <laughs> I believe she got up in the morning. Her, her little kid was like, hi, Mommy. How you doing? Baby, today is going to be great. We're going to starve to death, though, but it's going to be great. She had already lined it up in her head. We're going to eat this last piece of bread, and then we're going to starve. And listen, you don't, like, eat a last piece of bread and die in three hours. She knew that after this cake, between 15 to 25 days later, they were going to die of starvation. And here she is holding her sticks with the ending of her life already written in her head, and this random guy shows up, 
and asked for the last thing that she had to give. Elijah's response doesn't match the woman's distress. I swear by the Lord your God, I don't have any bread. We just gather these sticks, we're going to cook the bread, eat it, and die. Great. That's awesome, lady. Yeah, no, no, go ahead and do exactly, I mean, I still need the water because my throat's parched, but go ahead and do exactly all that that you just said. Do that. Yeah, I want you to do that. Just make mine first. Like, I'm not telling you not to cook your bread and then die. I'm just saying, make my bread first. Because thus said the Lord, he didn't say it about rain, but he says it here. Thus said the Lord, uh, uh, you will always have flour and always have oil, and it's never going to run out. And this woman, who is a foreigner, has no context of the God of Israel outside of the reputation that Israel has with their God, thinks to herself, I mean, we're going to die anyway, so what does it matter? I'll make your cake and make my cake, make my son's cake. We're going to die anyway. Who cares who gets one first? She goes and does it. And I think there's three things that, 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 that we should know before we leave, because, you know, I'm a three-pointer. <laughs> I think there's three points that I want us to know about knowing. So point number one, write this down. Faith is required to know. Faith is required to know. Hebrews 11 and 6 makes it very, very clear that without faith, it is absolutely impossible to please God. But that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. Faith is required to know. It's the entry level. There's a difference between faith and trust. Faith is what you have when you have no proof. Trust is what you have when you do. Faith is what you use when you don't know what the situation is going to be. Trust is what you have when you have empirical data. It's the reason why the just shall not live by trust. We tell people to trust in Jesus. Well, that's, that's not the prerequisite to having a relationship. The relationship is not based on trust up front. It's based on faith. Because if you have faith, it will mature to trust after some time. But in the beginning, all we have is faith. This woman did not know if this was going to work or not. She just went, okay. She went and started baking this cake. And she put her oil in there. She put her flour in there. She cooked the cake. They ate it. She said, if you're going to be here for a while, I'll, I'll give you a room. And in those days, to make sure that the reputation of a woman in that culture would not be diminished, a room was given to Elijah that you could only access from the outside. So she didn't, he didn't come in her house. She didn't have a two-story home. 
Okay, so she didn't come in the house and uh, uh, say you can go upstairs and sleep in a room. This was an upstairs room above the house that kind of sat as a loft that Elijah could go to from the outside and have some shelter. The next day, I would imagine a woman gets up before her kid gets up and goes, let me just see. I mean, we ate last night and our bed, we went to bed full. I bet you didn't, I mean, he's oil and flour. How, how in the world is more oil and flour gonna be in the pot? I mean, I emptied it out last night. I mean, I hit the bottom of it. I blew in it and tried to get everything out. She goes back the next day, opens up the cupboard, pulls out the flour, pulls out the oil, gets in there to scoop some out, and there's flour in there. Oh! Ah! <laughs> bless God. Pours the cruise of oil over it, and oil comes out. Ah! Thank you. Thank you. And they have breakfast. Dinner time rolls around. She's like, maybe someone's just stuck on the sides. Because you know oil heats and spreads, so maybe that's what happened. It was hot yesterday, and we don't have AC. So maybe. <laughs> they go in there, pull some out. Flour comes out. Oil comes out. They have dinner. The next day, flour comes out. Oil comes out. We have breakfast. Next day's dinner, flour comes out. Oil comes out. We have dinner. The next day, flour comes out. Oil comes out. 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 Because God's word cannot return back to him void. There was no updated word to tell it to stop, so it kept coming as long as that word was spoken over those two pots. Flour was going to keep coming and oil was going to keep coming. I don't know who I'm talking to, but whatever situation you are going through in your life, if God has a word spoken over you, it will continue to come to pass because his word can't come back void. What is amazing to me, though, is that with all this provision, there doesn't seem to be a settling in this woman's spirit of how good God is. Now, I grew up in charismatic Pentecostal churches all my life. And in those churches, uh, this uh, point that, that I just made about the flour and the oil coming out, that was the crescendo of the message. That was all you ever heard was provision. God's provision. <laughs> God's provision. The oil never ran out. The flour never ran out. Bake your cake, Jesus. Bake it, Jesus. And everybody would just go crazy. Oh, cake! Oh, Jesus, cake! Cake and Jesus! Jesus and cake and bread! Bread and Jesus and cake. Point number two, write this down. Provision suggests 
that we should know. <laughs> Provision merely suggests that we should know. And what an awesome provider God is. But isn't it amazing what we focus on as it relates to provision during our moment of need? And we reduce God to that. Oil and bread. Houses and cars. Jobs and degrees. Attendance and numbers. Tithing records and facilities. And so we just think that he's oil and bread. Oil and flour. And that's what we give him praise for because God, your provision, and he is provision. And we celebrate the provision. He loves his children. So of course he wants us to be clothed. Of course he wants us to be fed. Of course he wants us to have shelter. But make no mistake, the greatest provision that God supplies is not flour and bread. It's not clothes and shelter. It's blood. What we have for us to show that he is incredible provision in between the bread and the flour and the houses and the cars and the jobs and the promotions and the pay increases is blood. The first thing he provided to Adam and Eve after their fall was a sacrifice of blood for their nakedness to be covered. He killed something so that something else could be covered. It's the type and shadow of the Old Testament that gives its complete culmination in the new. Every rabbi believes that what was killed in the Old Testament to cover Adam and Eve's nakedness was a lamb. They believe that based on their faith and based on God's promise that he would send a lamb. In the New Testament, we have the lamb that was slain for our sins on the cross, not to cover physical bodies, but to cover us spiritually. And it's the greatest provision. It's not flour and oil. Blood. What I'm amazed by is that as amazing as the provision that God provides for his people, it still doesn't confirm for a lot of us that he is who he says he is. And we know this happened with this woman. I mean, think about it. Can you imagine days, weeks, and months going by where you keep going back to your refrigerator? And it's as full as the day you went shopping for groceries? And can you imagine having that type of provision in your face every single day and still not believing he's God? <laughs> That's why I can't stop at point number two. As happy as we get with provision, it's just a suggestion that we should know. This woman is abounding in God's grace, being sustained every single day. Then her son gets sick, and then he dies. 
And she immediately forgets about all the provision that's being had and starts questioning what's wrong with her. She runs up to the prophet, what, what did I ever do to you? Why did you even come to my house? Did you come in here to bring up all of my sins? See, for all the provisions, she still didn't think differently about who she was or who Elijah was. And Elijah's like, I, I, he's dead? He says something with some confidence, and, and you can tell that, that, that it was something that he was trying to display in front of her because when he got alone, it was completely different. Get a boy to me. I'll take him. Goes upstairs, lays him down. Lord Jesus, what, what is wrong? Well, you, you, don't wanna, you told me to come here and I'm here and the boy's dead. I mean, I mean, ah! this kid is dead. What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? He's not even hearing anything. God's not like, ha, 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 I did this for my glory. He's in a moment where he doesn't know what to do with himself. And he's praying, and then he just gets, <laughs> I don't know how he got to this. Um, but as he was praying, I don't know if he was prompted or what, but he's like, And he's laying on top of a dead boy. I can imagine the faith got him there, but once he got there, he was like, what am I doing on top of a dead boy? And he prayed for the child three times. And the kid came back to life. Resurrection happened. And when it did, he picked the boy back up. <laughs> hey, man, I used to taking a nap. Come downstairs, come back through the main house. Look! Your boy is alive! And then the woman says something that I believe God was after from the beginning. He wasn't after her house, and he wasn't there to prove that he could do bread. He was there because she, he wanted her heart. And here's the response of the woman when she sees her son come back to life. Now I know. Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord, not your Lord, not your God, but that the word of the Lord is true. Write this down for point number three. Resurrection demands that we know. Resurrection demands that we know. Provision suggested. But resurrection demands it. Do you know why every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess in heaven, on earth, and things under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord? It's not going to be because he died. 
It's going to be because he got up. When he died on the cross, that was provision. That's a suggestion that you should know I love you. How many parents go through that season with your kids when they get to the point where they're like, you don't even love me. And the first thing that we do to respond is, what? what? Those clothes that you have on, that car I bought you on your 16th birthday, that college tuition I'm trying to pay for, you don't think I love you? We respond with provision. But provision is just a suggestion that you love me. Resurrection is the proof that you love me. And when that boy got up, she couldn't say, oh, well, you know, maybe he was asleep. My son is a hard sleeper. He scares me like that all the time. But this boy was dead and came back to life. And when he came back to life, she was no longer thinking this was something special. She knew it. In the same way, each and every one of us will never know God through his provision. He can only be known through the resurrection of his son. I am shocked about how, about the amount of believers that confess Jesus Christ as Lord, but based on provision, their faith shakes. If your belief system is going to be found in two jars, then depending on how much flour and oil you have at any given season, that's where your faith will be. Here's what I know for a fact. If that woman would have woke up the next day and had no oil and no flour, she would have still been believed in the God of Israel. No longer because of provision, but because she saw resurrection. In the same way, our faith in Jesus Christ cannot be solidified based on what the provision is that we have at any given season of our life. Now, he loves to provide for his children, but if you don't have a resurrection experience with the living Savior who is Jesus Christ, then the cross will simply be a suggestion to you. The gospel message doesn't stop at the cross. It ends at a grave. That grave's empty. And our Savior is alive. That's how we know. I gave my life to Jesus Christ January 14th of 1996. Sitting in the back of my parents' church and I heard the Holy Spirit say, Tim, you're a sinner. As casually as I'm talking to you now, he just said, you're a sinner. There was no condemnation in the statement. It was just 
statement of fact. You're a sinner. For the first time in my life, I was aware that I was disconnected from a relationship with God as my father. And I burst into tears. I just started crying profusely. I couldn't stop. And uh, that day, I gave my life to Jesus Christ. Not because somebody put a check in my hand. Not because I got a promotion on the job. I think at that time, mommy and daddy, I was doing animal control. Lord have mercy. I was going door to door, knocking on people's doors who had pets to see if they had licenses for their pets. I've never been cussed out so many times in my life. It's the worst job you can ever have. That was my job. It wasn't based on that. It wasn't based on the fact that I wanted to be in law enforcement and, and I went through the academy and I graduated. I actually failed before I could even get started. The Lord blocked stuff. What solidified my faith in Jesus Christ was not anything that he gave me in provision outside of his blood. It was the fact that a resurrected Savior was so madly in love with me that not only did he die, he got back up with all power in his hand. This is the gospel message in the Old Testament. <laughs> It had been easy to give it to you from the new. We know to go to Gospels and give it to you, but I wanted to show you the gospel personified in the Old Testament that in 1 Kings 17, there was a widow in Jezebel's hometown that understood faith, provision, and resurrection a couple of thousand years before Jesus was even born. And he's available for you today. You want to know him? I wish provision could seal the deal for you. But as we all know, provision today, gone tomorrow. Groceries today, you'll need groceries again in two weeks. <laughs> you get a raise, most of us don't steward our money well, so then we start, oh, what, we got a 10% increase? We're going to get 10% more TVs. <laughs> iPads, cell phones, and I'm going to get 10% better car. We're right back in the same situation again. It's never going to be in money. I don't, I don't know what your pot is. But if you base your faith on what you see in that pot, the enemy's going to have a field day with you. Stop looking at the pots and look at the sun. Not that woman's. God's. And you'll know. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? What is the Holy Spirit saying to you through this message? I felt so strongly while we were singing that last song that there was somebody in here that wanted to give their life to Jesus Christ. I just felt it. I felt it so strongly and almost just jumped up and did an altar call right then and there. Don't miss your moment. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, what better day to do it than today? No matter what the enemy is trying to lie to you about, no matter what he's telling you is wrong with you, you've got to clean this up first, you need to do that first, and my spouse is here, and what if they look at me crazy, my parents are here, and 
that matters. What matters is you hear the Holy Spirit telling you you're disconnected and you need to come home. The wonderful thing about being a part of a local church body is that we have the opportunity every single weekend to have a family reunion. But every week, potentially, we could have somebody that wants to come home to their father and be a part of his family. In a moment, we're going to pray. And if you need prayer for any reason, we're going to ask you to come. You don't have to be a resident of Embassy City Church to come for prayer. Our altar ministry team just loves to pray for people. We've been praying for you and gearing up for you all week. So whatever you need prayer for, we want you to come. But if it's specific to this message, if you're somebody that spends too much time looking in the cupboard, you got one of them Pyrex dishes with the little measurements on it, and any time your life gets below one cup, you freak out. Don't put your trust in the pots. Put it in the Savior. Not in what is going to be poured out for you, but for whose blood was poured out for you. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would draw every person that needs prayer, that they would come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand to your feet?